Thank you, James, for reading for us. And like, as Austin said, my name is Mark. Uh, it's so good to be back and, and preaching and open up, opening up God's Word for, for us today. Uh, before we begin, let's pray and ask God to help us um, understand and take His Word to heart. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that by Your Word we know how good You are to us. Help us to hear Your Word today, to take it to heart and be transformed by Your grace. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Do you love God? Now, you might expect every Christian in the room to say, yes, I love God. I mean, that's what a Christian should say, right? Well, this was certainly not the case with Martin Luther. Martin Luther, 16th century Christian reformer, one incredibly important person in church history. This is what he said about God. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction, my religious reparations. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. For Martin Luther, the thought of God did not fill him with love, but with fear, hatred, and anger, because he knew that he was a sinner deserving of God's punishment. And he knew that he could never be good enough to escape God's punishment. Now, in my high school years and in my early university years, I had a similar thought about God. As a Christian, I was filled with fear because I did not know if I was good enough for God. My life seemed to be a cycle of try to be good, end up sinning, ask God for forgiveness. Then then try to be good, end up sinning again, ask God for forgiveness. Then try to be good and end up sinning again and again. I knew that sin put me on God's bad side, and as much as I tried to be good, I felt like I just kept sinning again and again and again. How could I possibly be good enough to escape God's punishment? How could I say that I loved God when the prize of getting into heaven felt so unattainable? Do you love God? Maybe you're here today and you're not sure where you stand with God. Maybe you're here today and the thought of God brings you fear rather than joy. Maybe you're here today and you can't see what's so amazing about the message of the Bible. And that's how I felt about God. All of those feelings. Until one defining moment. I was sitting at my dining room table, reading Ephesians 2 in preparation for a Bible study. There were no visions, no soft, small voices, just me and the words on the page. And as I read those same ten verses that James read for us earlier, I finally began to understand why God is so amazing. My anxiety turned to peace and security. My resentment turned into overflowing thankfulness and joy. As we come to the Bible today, as we carefully unpack these words from Paul, a follower of Jesus, we will see just how amazing God is. We will see how worthy God is of all of our love and our praise. After unpacking God's word together today, my hope is that our hearts would overflow with thankfulness as we see and recognize God's amazing kindness towards us. My hope is that we would be completely assured of our future with God because if we trust in Jesus. My hope is that the grace of God would move us to praise God with our lives and empower us to grow in godliness each and every day. Now, are you ready to see how amazing God is? Well, in order to see how amazing God is, 
we need to first understand our human condition. Our human condition without God, which is that we are hopelessly dead in sin. This is point number one, hopelessly dead in sin. You can read with me from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Now Paul, he, he was a Jew and also a Christian, and he writes this letter to mostly non-Jewish Christians in the Roman city of Ephesus. Now that's where modern-day Turkey is. Now although Paul wrote this letter around the year 60 AD, nearly 2,000 years ago, Paul is describing the spiritual reality for all humans, for all time. And that means that this letter describes things that are true for me, for you, and everyone alive today. Paul tells us about our spiritual state before we become Christians. See, although we may be physically living and breathing, we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Another word, trespasses, it carries the meaning of violating laws, like breaking God's laws. The word sins carries the meaning of intentional rebellion, uh, willfully rebelling against God. And so Paul writes that in our natural state, we live as enemies against God, not listening to what God says and living by our own rules without God. As Paul puts it, we walk in our trespasses and sins according to the ways of the world. In fact, we, we actually live under the rule of Satan, the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit who works in everyone who rebels against God. As enemies and rebels against God, we are by nature people who deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the righteous punishment of a good and righteous God because we have all willfully rebelled against Him. And Paul describes this universal human condition, our spiritual state, as being dead. Why? Because we are hopelessly dead, hopelessly trapped in our life of trespasses and sins. And we are unable to save ourselves from God's wrath, which we fully deserve. Imagine for a second that you're swimming in the ocean. I know there's lots of nice oceans and seas and beaches here in uh, New Zealand. I've seen some good ones in Sydney as well. But imagine that you're swimming in the ocean, right? It's a lovely, lovely time, and you decide to go a little bit deeper than you should have, and a wave comes and takes you under into the water. Now, you still have some hope of not ending up on Pihar Rescue, on coming, swimming to the surface and breaking free, catching some air, and saving yourself. But imagine if the wave knocks you unconscious. Suddenly, your chances of saving yourself drop dramatically, right? You're just waiting there unconscious, hoping to come to in order to break free and, and get a gasp of air. In this passage, Paul wants to go one step further in describing our situation, right? We're not trapped unconscious and slowly drowning, but rather we, we are dead in our sins. In our sin, we are spiritually dead. We really have no way of saving ourselves. We are hopelessly dead in sin. Our human condition is a, is a truly hopeless situation. But it's not a situation that we've found ourselves in against our will. The truth is that we always willingly choose to live in sin. Do you hear what the Bible is saying today? Paul is saying that humanity is not basically good. In fact, we're not even a little bit good deep down inside somewhere. 
No, but rather we are totally corrupt. In our natural state, we are spiritually dead, and we will always choose to live in sin. As Paul writes in verse 3, we live in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. In other words, we always bring to fruition the desire of our will. It's just in our corrupt human nature to sin against God. Have you heard of the story of the frog and the scorpion? Uh, the scorpion, he needs to cross a river, right? He can't swim. So he asks a frog who, who can go on land, go in the water. So he asks the frog to ferry him over. The frog agrees. And now, as, the, as they're going through the river, right in the middle of the river for some reason, the scorpion stings the frog. The frog's now paralyzed. He seizes up, and now they're both drowning. They're both drowning and gargling through the water. The frog asks, why did you do that? The scorpion says, it's just in my nature. In our natural state without God, we are hopelessly dead in sin. We are fully deserving of God's wrath, and we will always continue to live in sin. So how did this all affect me as I'm reading it, right? How did it all affect me? How does it affect me today? Firstly, I needed to realize that as a human, I was totally corrupt. All of my thoughts and actions are naturally tainted by sin. And this was a real blind spot for me, and it still is today. I like to think that I'm not as sinful as I really am. In most of my arguments that I have with my wife, I'm usually convinced that I act like a saint, not a sinner. I ignore how selfish I am, and I, and I say that, oh, I'm actually being selfless here. I'm actually being really responsible when I'm not. The first thing we need to understand is that we're not as good as we think we are. We need to have this perspective, yes, in our relationships with each other, but even more so in our relationship with God. We need to have this perspective about where we stand with God. We are not as good as we think we are. But secondly, and most importantly, I began to realize that I couldn't save myself from the wrath of God. None of us can. I could never be good enough to get into heaven. God would never examine my life and say, you're good enough. I reckon you deserve eternal blessing. No. No amount of trying to be good would help me, None of, nothing, or any of us. It wouldn't help any of us escape the wrath of God. We are hopelessly dead in our sin and deserving of God's punishment. So, how are you feeling? I know how I feel. Hopeless. But it's in our dark, grim, and hopeless state that God intervenes, shining like a beacon in the darkness as he shows off the riches of his grace. That's point number two. God shows off the riches of his grace. You can read with me from verse four. Paul writes this. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Even though we are dead in sin, even though we deserve God's wrath, God makes us alive with Christ. How amazing is that, right? Paul writes that God makes us alive with Christ, which is God loving us with his great love. Now, why would God love any sinner, right? It's certainly not because we deserve his love, because we deserve his wrath instead. And yet, God expresses his amazing kindness to us which shows that God is rich in mercy. God's mercy is Him rescuing us from a punishment that we deserve. 
God's love to us shows that God is rich in mercy. As an early Christian theologian put it, he says this, Why did he love us? For these things are not deserving of love, but of the sorest wrath and punishment. And thus, it was great mercy. God brings us from spiritual death to eternal life, an act of his great love explained only as mercy. And God accomplishes this powerful work through his son, Jesus Christ. God removes our punishment and forgives our sins through the death of Christ, who took our punishment in our place. Paul writes this in chapter 1. It will appear on the screen for you. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now, the message of the Bible does not end with a dead Savior, but God works his incredible power in Christ, in his death, in his resurrection, and his ascension. Still in, in chapter 1, in verse 20, Paul says this, God exercised his mighty power by raising Jesus from the dead and making Jesus king over everything, seated at God's right hand in the highest heavens. And in God's amazing kindness, in God's amazing kindness to us, he unites us to Christ and works the same power in us. Come back to chapter 2 for a second and look at what Paul writes in verse 6. God also raised us up with Christ and seated us up with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. God makes us alive together with Christ. God raises us from the dead together with Christ. And God seats us together with Christ at his right hand in the heavens. In Christ, we are given every spiritual blessing. In Christ, Satan does not have a hold on us, for we are with Christ the King. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. And we are brought from spiritual death to eternal life. And why did God do all of this? Why did God love us in this way? Paul writes this in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God does all of this so that for all future time into eternity, he can show off the riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ. What is grace? It's God's kindness despite our unworthiness. What is grace? It's God's favor despite our failure. Even though we were deserving of his wrath, God instead shows us incredible kindness, forgiving our sins and bringing us from death to eternal life. That is God's grace. And for everyone of us who trust in Jesus, who are saved by the grace of God, we will be eternal displays of the riches of God's grace. You can think of it like this. Uh, who here has seen a trophy cabinet? Or maybe who here has a trophy cabinet or trophy display in their house? I'm looking for all the high achievers or the ones who have high achievers in the, in the house. So I can see someone's hand up at the back. That's great. Now, when I was a kid, uh, me and my siblings, uh, we were part of a junior hikers group. And we would go out once a month uh, to hike in the Malaysian jungles. And uh, every time you completed 12 runs, you were awarded a pewter cup. Now, on the screen, you should see, there you go, you should see all the cups that me and my siblings received. Now, you might recognize that they're on a car. 
They used to be on display in our house. My dad actually recently moved them away into a shoe cupboard. We'll, we'll, I'll talk with him later. <laughs> um, but these were on display. And you can see at the very top, there's a, there's a big cup. That cup. That cup belongs to my brother. And that cup is proof that my brother is the best of all three of us siblings. <laughs> because inscribed on that cup are the words, Matthew Huang, 72 runs. That cup... It is proof that that cup, it's a trophy that shows that my brother had the resilience, the determination, and the fitness to compete 72 runs in the hot Malaysian jungles, rain or shine. That trophy does not point to its own value, it's only made of pewter, but rather it shows off how great my brother is, how great my brother is who won that trophy. Now, if you trust in Jesus, you are God's trophy. We are God's trophies who will forever show off God's superabundant grace. And it's because although we deserved God's wrath, God loved us with his great love. It's not about our greatness, but about God's amazing grace. The new creation will be God's trophy display, full of rescued sinners who show off the riches of God's grace. What did this mean for me? What, what does it mean for us today? For me, as I understood the kindness of God, I was filled with thankfulness. For the first time, I was genuinely motivated to praise and magnify God with my life because I realized that He is worthy of it all. Another thing that uh, struck me was that I did not have to save myself. Not that I could anyway. The amazing message of the Bible is that God saves us when we were dead in our sins. God saves us despite our unworthiness. Yes, no one can be good enough for God, but also no one can be bad enough for God either. I didn't have to clean up my life to be saved by God. No, no, my salvation was not based on my effort, but on God's amazing love. This is one of many things that gives me great assurance about salvation. And it's that God is the one who makes it happen, securing it for me. How amazing is God? He saves us even though we deserve his wrath. And God's kindness to us means that he gets all of the praise for our salvation. And this is what Paul wants to emphasize with these last verses of this passage. This is the summary of how salvation works. It's point number three, saved by grace through faith for the glory of God. Have a look with me at verse 8. Paul writes, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourself, it is God's gift, not from work so that no one can boast. Salvation comes by grace, and it is received through faith. And I'll say it again, God's grace is God's kindness despite our unworthiness. And faith here carries the meaning of trusting in someone else apart from yourself. We receive salvation by trusting in God, trusting that Christ has died for our sins so that we can live forever with God. Now, Paul wants to be absolutely clear here. This whole package of being saved by grace through faith, this does not come from us, but rather it is God's gift. It does not come from our works, but only by the gracious work of God in Christ. God has made salvation this way so that no one who is saved can boast in themselves. Now that purpose statement, that last bit, so that no one can boast, that, 
statement really helps us understand the intricacies of, of grace, faith, and works in salvation. Salvation is done in a way that means that no one can boast in themselves, but only boast in God. Our works do not cause us to be saved, but rather, salvation is God's free gift of grace. Now, what about faith? Where does that come from? Our faith to receive salvation comes from God, since it's part of God's gift. And also remember that in our natural state, we are spiritually dead. Our minds are darkened, never willing to turn to God. We need God to transform us. At the same time, we also all do need to make a real choice to trust in Jesus for salvation. Yet it's not a boastful trust, but rather a trust that says, I am hopelessly dead in my sin. I need Christ to save me. It's not about what I have done, but only ever about God's amazing grace. Now, if you trust in Christ for salvation, and that may be something that you do for the first time today, if you trust in Christ, then you are saved. I love how the Bibles we have at church translate this phrase, you are saved. Not you were saved or you will be saved, you are saved. From the moment you trust in Christ, based on what God has done in Christ for you beforehand, you presently experience salvation now. If you trust in Christ, eternal life is a present reality for you. Yes, there's going to be so much more when Christ returns, but the fact is that if you trust in Christ, you experience salvation right now. It is God's gift, and it is yours forever. Now, this was the defining moment for me. It's when I first realized for the first time and with such clarity that salvation was God's gift of grace. See, I used to think about my relationship with God like my relationship with the University of Auckland. Now, when I graduated high school, I received the University of Auckland scholarship. Before you think I'm boasting, the story has more. It was essentially a full um, payment of all my course fees during my time at university for my first degree, and it was a truly amazing blessing, but it was not a gift. It was a contract because it was conditional on me maintaining a GPA of B plus or higher. It was conditional on my effort. And now I'm ashamed to admit, as Asian as I am, <laughs> that I wasn't the best student, and my GPA went down to the point where I got warning letters and even got my scholarship put on pause. And I remember in those moments, I remember feeling so anxious that how, about my scholarship that how this worked and how, whether I would retain it was based on how well I was going to do on my exams the following, time, the following exam period. I did eventually lose the scholarship. And the only person I can blame is myself. Is this how it is with God? Is salvation conditional on my effort? Will God revoke my salvation if I can't be good enough? No. God's salvation is not a contract. It is a gift. Salvation is not conditional on our effort to earn it or to maintain it. It is freely given. If we trust in Christ, salvation is ours forever. How amazing is that? God saves us by his grace, a gift that is ours forever, not based on our works, but purely on God's love. And as much as we are saved from our hopeless life in sin, we are also saved for a life of godliness. Have a look with me at verse 10. 
When God saves us, he makes us into a new creation, his very own workmanship. We do not recreate ourselves, but God creates us in Christ. And we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Once we were trapped in a life of sin, always giving in to our fleshly desires, now God transforms us so that we can live in godliness. Godliness is not a pain here, but a privilege, right? We get to be godly. And we, we, we can be confident that we can, that we can keep growing in godliness because God has already prepared our good works for us ahead of time. God has saved us from our sins by His grace, and God has saved us for an eternal life of godliness by His grace. We are saved by grace through faith for the glory of God. How can we apply this to our lives? Well, how can you apply the grace of God to your lives? Where do we even begin? We could probably have this sermon go on for multiple hours. I won't do that to you. But let me encourage you with how God's grace has impacted me and my life. Firstly, the grace of God drives me to humility. I was not deserving of God's kindness, and yet He chose to love me. Everything was put in the right perspective for me, right? God deserves all the praise in my life. There's no room for boasting in myself. And when I consider the people in the world around me, uh, those who still live as enemies against God, I'm tempted to judge them and think that I'm better than them. But I'm reminded that we are all in need of God's grace. We're all in need of God's salvation. The only reason why I'm saved is because of God's grace, not my merit. Uh, Secondly, the grace of God drives me to graciousness. When I consider just how gracious God was to me, it helps me to be patient and gracious with others. It helps me to assume the best of people. And also, although it's hard at times, it helps me to forgive those who have wronged me. Thirdly, the grace of God drives me to confession. I find it hard to admit my own sinfulness, right? Often it takes the the form of not apologizing for being selfish or for speaking harshly. And I think it's because deep down, somewhere inside, I still think that I need to be good to be saved by God. But that's not how it works, right? Since I trust in Jesus, I am already saved by God's grace, I can admit my sinfulness to God, to myself, and to others freely because I know that my future with God is secure. And this leads to the fourth um, impact on my life. The grace of God drives me to godliness. See, God saved me as I was, but never to stay as I was. God has made me a new creation for good works. I get to live a life of godliness, and God has already prepared it for me. Yes, I may not be perfect on this side of history before Christ returns, but I can have the confidence that I will grow to be more like Jesus each and every day. So, do you love God? My new question is, how can you not love God? Even though we were hopelessly dead in sin, God shows off the riches of His grace, making us alive in Christ, saving us by grace through faith for His glory. Friends, I hope that just like I did in that defining moment, just like I've had the privilege of experiencing again in preparing this talk, I hope that you have seen just how amazing God is. I hope you have seen, even if just for a glimpse, the immeasurable riches of God's grace through His kindness to us in Christ. If you trust in Jesus, even if that's for the first time today, if you trust in Jesus, then you are saved by grace through faith. May the grace of God forever captivate our hearts 
as we live our eternal life of godliness in endless praise to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace that you've shown us in Christ, that we were not deserving of your love, but you loved us instead. Father, help us to take this to heart. May your grace transform us, grow us, ground us. May it captivate us that we would continue living for Jesus, praising him with our lives each and every day. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.